unpacking the truth. You have questions, and God's Word has answers. In these special messages, it is my goal to answer tough questions that members of God's family have regarding life, ministry, scripture, and theology in a general sense. While I pray that these are a blessing and a help to you, I would encourage you in no way to think of online messages to serve as a sufficient replacement for faithful fellowship with and as a local body of believers. Find a church that declares the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with unfiltered and unadulterated faithfulness and get plugged in there. These messages serve as an extension of the pulpit ministry of Mount Carmel Baptist Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky, where I serve as the lead pastor. If you don't have a local church, we would love to welcome you for His glory. According to the National Safety Council, statistics show that in 2021, 50% of car crash fatalities are affected by lack of restraint. Encouragingly, this number represents a decrease since the same report from the year 2000 revealed that nearly 61% of fatalities included those who were unrestrained. Besides the obvious moral of the story, wear your seatbelt, there's a spiritual analogy to be found somewhere in this report. If we aren't careful, our lack of restraint will lead us into certain death. Now, why does this matter for our verse at hand? Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. The verse simply states that there is nothing new under the sun. So what does restraint have anything to do with it? Well, in order to rightly understand any passage of scripture, we need to understand its context. Context is key. And in order to understand our particular text, we need to understand that it is nestled in a larger context in which the subject of vanity is addressed. We are a fickle lot, always chasing the next best thing. Is it any wonder that smartphones release new models every six months? TVs are considered outdated within a matter of a couple of years? And stylistic fashions and fads are yesterday's news by the time the teenagers' tie-dye t-shirts have finished drying? If we aren't careful, we will think of every little thing as the next hottest topic, and, in doing so, we will be like those who chase the wind, always running, but never progressing. In this session of Tracking the Truth, I want to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and particularly at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, under the sermon title or message title of A, Di a, Di a Dilemma of Existential Proportions. Point 1, A Meaningless Earthly Distraction, verses 1 through 8. Verse 1. In our first verses of Ecclesiastes, the writer, presumably Solomon, who was the son of David, refers to himself as the preacher. Read with me Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work? which he does under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. 
All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. For, da- for the son of David, namely Solomon, to refer to himself in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1 as the preacher is literally to refer to himself as a collector of phrases. Solomon was the richest of all kings, but his great possession was not monetary. In fact, it wasn't physical at all. Further, his greatest possession wasn't his status or his luxury. Of all the kings, of all the things he could have called himself, perhaps a collector of coins, a collector of constituents, a collector of fine pearls and fine linens, a collector of kingdoms, but he does none of that. He calls himself a collector of sayings or phrases. Literally, this is to say that he was a man of wisdom, a man of right application, of right knowledge. Such is the nature of those whom God calls to preach. We are to be collectors of phrases, and not just any phrases, but of the very phrases or writings of God. And then we are to apply that truth to real life, to act, speak, live, model, and teach wisdom. This should be an indication as to where we're headed. The writer sees his greatest treasure as being that which has to do with something beyond all that he can see. Sometime in the 1800s, the phrase was coined, there's more than meets the eye. That is, there's something beyond what is directly in front of our face. And in this case, that something is really someone, and he is insurmountably better than what merely meets the eye. And so it's for this reason that Solomon calls himself a preacher, one who collects phrases, namely the phrases or the writings of wisdom found in the scriptures. Verse 2. This exclamatory statement found in verse 2 seems to be a miserable one. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It seems to be filled with hopeless pessimism, depressive even. Why would this preacher exclaim that everything is vain? Our modern English understanding of this word is that of a denotation of meaningless. However, the original language, Hebrew in the Old Testament, denotes a similar but deeper meaning than that of our English translation of this word, vanity. In its original language, this word for vanity, hevel, is intended to paint a picture on the mind of the reader. The word literally means like smoke or as a vapor. The preacher speaks of something of everything as vanity or as hevel. Literally as smoke of smoke, as vanity of vanities, as hevel of hevel, which is a very Hebrew-esque way of writing called layering, in which emphasis is placed upon a word or line of thought through the employment of repetition. It's like our English way of saying, the steak is very, very good, but would instead be written in Hebrew as saying, this steak is good, good. What the preacher is saying is that everything is just smoke. Here one moment, and gone the next. And James, the very half-brother of our Lord, affirms this thought, saying in James 4, verse 14, You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Verses 3-8 through 
So what does this have to do with anything? What is he teaching us here? The single most important question we must ask of any text of Scripture is this. What is the text telling us of God? Where's the gospel in this? We see the preacher give some further explanation in verses 3 through 8. Verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? In verse 3, he says what he'll repeat in Ecclesiastes 2.11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity, and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So, is Solomon undermining the fact that work was commanded of Adam before the fall? not after the fall, as though work were a punishment or effect of the fall, meaning that work is good and not bad? Is the Spirit-inspired writer Solomon making light of what the same Spirit-inspired Paul was instructed to write in Colossians 3 verse 23 when he instructs the members of the church at Colossae to work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men? Answer, absolutely not. Because the Holy Spirit of God does not contradict himself, and he is the divine author inspiring Solomon's words just as much as he is the divine author inspiring Paul's words. So here's at least part of the answer to our larger question I said we need to ask of scriptural texts. Namely, where is God in this? God is the author, the one who has inspired that these words be penned, and they are inspired according to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, for our instruction, so that we may be made perfect and complete in Christ. So what he's saying here, Solomon, is simple. If all you're doing in life is chasing the dollar, you'll find that your work is worthless. This is in perfect alignment with James's words, or with Paul's words, rather. Work for the Lord rather than for men. Don't work for yourself, don't work for your boss, don't work for your family. Yes, those are people we work for on the micro scale, but on the macro scale, that is, with a big picture in mind, far more important as being an upright employee who honors God in his work than being a scandalous employee who lines his pockets with dishonest gain. Verses 4-7 through A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place where the rivers flow. There they flow again. In verses 4-7, through seven, the same line of thought is put to us in multiple ways, like looking at a diamond from all sides and angles. The point is, to say that we are here for a mere moment and then gone. Maybe you have heard it said that when it comes to your position you hold at your job, if you died today, your job would be posted tomorrow. Such is the line of reasoning found in these verses. The sun is going to rise and set each day, regardless of what you do. The wind will still blow wherever way it, whatever way it goes. The oceans will still have their waves and their boundaries. The point is to show us how small we truly are. We are here and then we're gone. We live, and then we die. We breathe, and then we cease to breathe. Now this sounds like a morbid, pessimistic way of thinking, but it is in fact a realistic way of thinking. It is a right understanding of reality. Death is certain. 
There's no escaping it. And in the same way, toils along life's way are certain, and again, there is no escaping them. We are small, and yet not insignificant. And in that reality, we see the love of God. God is so big, so beyond our understanding, as we're told in Isaiah 55, 8-9, that for Him to give us even a moment of His attention is a mercy of mercies. I'm reminded of Psalm 8, 3-4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? It ought to be incredible to us. It ought to be a matter of great awe that this God, who is such a great God, such a glorious God, such a holy, holy, holy God, would give us his attention. This smallness of man is why the psalmist says in Psalm 90, 10 through 14, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury, according to the fear that is due you? So, teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants, O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. We need to understand that the days are short and eternity is long, and this knowledge will be, as the psalmist says, a means of granting us wisdom or the ability to rightly apply what we understand to be true in ways that will affect our everyday life. Finally, in verse 8, we see that the things of this life are wearisome or laborious and trying. This Hebrew word, yagawe, is not related to the word yawn, etymologically speaking, but it is certainly similar both in pronunciation and in meaning. Verse 8. All things are wearisome, or boring, or troublesome, or laborious, or tiring. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Life can be boring. It can be difficult. It can be sad. It can be painful, but it can also be joyful. It can be filled with wonder. It can be fun and adventurous. Life is full of twists and turns, up and ups and downs, mountains and valleys, deserts and springs. And this is why Paul says in Romans 8 verses 18 through 23, something of the groaning or laboring of all creation. Romans 8 beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body.
And it is because of this that the writer Solomon of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 8 considers all things to be wearisome or boring or troublesome. It is because the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. In other words, nothing in this world can bring true and lasting satisfaction that fills the soul. And that's why we see our second point in our text at hand, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. Point two, a matchless eternal desire, verse 9. All of this serves as the foundation for our understanding of our text at hand, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9. Again, context is key. If we fail to understand the rest of this, and to understand the fuller context or meta-narrative, that is, the big picture of the whole narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, then we would fall drastically and detrimentally short, to say the least, of understanding this verse. It was Spurgeon who said, Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn of the emptiness of everything else. And it was Calvin who said of our hearts that the human heart is a factory of idols, every one of us from our mother's womb experts in inventing idols. We must be constantly on guard against chasing every fad, adopting every newfound fashion and employing every trend. We have seen the theological demise that such adoption of trends and fashions, vogues and fads, can have on a church body. We need only to look at so-called preachers like Stephen Furtick, Michael Todd, Joel Osteen, Joyce Myers, Bill Johnson, and the whole lot like them to see how foolish trying to be trendy will make you. It was Lloyd-Jones and his work, Preaching and Preachers, a book, by the way, that I believe every preacher should read, who said this. One of the advantages of being old is that you have experience. So when something new comes up and you see people getting very excited about it, you happen to be in the position of being able to remember a similar excitement perhaps 40 years ago. And so one has seen fashions and vogues and stunts coming one after another in the church. Each one creates... great excitement and enthusiasm, and is loudly advertised as the thing that is going to fill the churches, the thing that is going to solve the problem. They have said that about every single one of them, but in a few years they have forgotten all about it, and another stunt comes along or another new idea. Somebody has hit upon the one thing needful, or he has a psychological understanding of modern man. Here's the thing, and everybody rushes after it. But soon it wanes and disappears and something else takes its place. This is, surely, a very sad and regrettable state for the Christian church to be in, that like the world she should exhibit these constant changes of fashion. In that state she lacks the stability and the solidity of, of the continuing message that has ever been the glory of the Christian church. End quote. In other words, we need to be very careful that our guards are up against the constant onslaught of temptation to be awestruck by the shining lights of latest fashions, in order that we instead set our eyes on something much more glorious than strobe lights, to instead focus on the light who is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is something foolish about the one whose eyes are so focused horizontally that they are never focused vertically. One of the phrases that companies like to teach their employees is work with your eyes up. In other words, don't work with your head tucked so deeply into your work that you fail to see the big picture, the customers around you, 
Such is the thrust of Solomon's words here. Don't be so caught up in the here and now that you forget about eternal matters. But at the same time, this doesn't mean for a moment that the here and now is entirely useless. If that were the case, we could just become fatalists, pretending as though whatever happens, happens, and nothing really matters. But adopting our theology from Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody is less than commendable. What we do in the here and now matters precisely because of eternal matters. This world and life giving us glimpses into the eternal world and life in preparation of our souls for it. So we don't sulk through life with a false view of meaningless about everything. But we do need to rightly understand that the things of life are like a vapor, like a smoke that looks tangible, that is physically attainable, and yet when we reach out to grab it, we find that it is much less satisfying than we thought that it would be. Smoke is here for a moment, but quickly vanishes. And so, when Solomon in all of his wisdom, his collection of phrases, again verse 1, says that there is nothing new under the sun, what he's reminding us of, is that this world, even in all its beauty and wonder and grandeur and destinations and delicacies and joys, that there's nothing that the world can offer that brings about any newness of life, any lasting satisfaction. Because Christ and Christ alone brings such newness and lasting joy. And he does so not as a bridge to get us to something beyond himself, but he does so within his own person and work because he is the prize for the wearied soul. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, there are two things important to our discussion in this text. First, a clear reminder to set our minds on the things above and not on the things that are on earth. And second, to put on the newness of life in Christ, not to seek newness and joy and satisfaction in and from the things that are below the sun or the things that are beneath the sun, but we instead look to the creator of the sun, to the one who is above and beyond the sun and the skies, who is more glorious and radiant and beauty than the sun. Now, there is something important that we need to dispel before we close the discussion on this text and topic of reality. That is the differentiation between two common views of time, cyclical or circular, and linear or progressive. Cyclical time was the common view held amongst those of Hebrew and Greek gods' ideology. They believed that time circulated, resulting in incarnation and the ceaseless repetition of past events in the present and future. So, like the Matrix, this was the belief that what takes place in the present is really a mirage, a mere image of something else. And that something else is history past that keeps replaying itself like a song on repeat. Life is pretend. Linear time is understood to be the orthodox view held by Christians. This is the idea that everything had a beginning, is moving forward in progression, and is actively pressing on towards some goal. A goal, by the way, which is fulfilled at a particular point in time and in particular ways in a particular place. Life is real. 
For Solomon to say that there is nothing new under the sun is not to be understood as Solomon attempting to express a cyclical or circular view of time, as though everything just repeats itself again and again. Why? Because remember that 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 tells us that all scripture is breathed out, that is, inspired by God. If, here in Ecclesiastes, we have a denial of linear time, then we have God denying what he himself reveals to be true throughout the meta-narrative of the Bible. That is, again, the big picture of the story of the whole Bible. We see in Ephesians 1 and 2 that there was something before the foundation of the world, namely God and his infinite wisdom planning and designing the universe. In Genesis 1, we see the fruit of God's planning when the world is created by his sovereign power. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus is the incarnate Savior who reconciles those of the temporal world to the eternal God, promising those who place their God-given gift of faith in Him the gift of eternal life with Himself. In passages of Scripture like Daniel, Zechariah, the letters to the Thessalonians, and Revelation, we see the promises of coming judgment, the return of the Lord Jesus as the bridegroom, come to collect His bride, and the reality of eternal glory for those who have fallen asleep in Christ, and eternal wrath for those whose final breaths were taken in enmity against God. The entire Bible tells us with unwavering clarity that the world and human history are moving toward something, toward a goal, an end game. And what is that end game? What's the big plan, the major context? What is better than the things under the sun beyond the horizon that we can see with our eyes? What's the reason for our existence, for all of this that we see around us? Philippians 2, 9 and 10. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him, him being Jesus, the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, this life is not one big meaningless show meant to torment the mind and very being of those who, those of us watching it play itself over and over again on repeat. There's much more to life than what we see. There's something, indeed someone, so much greater, so much better than all this life offers because he is the very one who offers life. And so I would encourage you, Based upon Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Upon that verse, I would encourage you not to assume erroneously that we're living our best life now. If this is our best life now, then that's because we have no hope of heaven. But as believers, as those who have placed our trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, under the salvation of our soul, in his finished work on our behalf, in our stead at Calvary's cross, those of us who have our faith in him have a bedrock foundational promise of eternal life and indeed a better life to come. And it's for this reason that the hymn writer so beautifully wrote these words, of which I remind you now. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior, and life more abundant and free. 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart, as Ephesians 1 verse 18 tells us that you do for your people. We ask that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17 tells us. Lord, help us by your power, by your grace, by your love, by your patience to see more clearly that this life is not all that there is. And would you help us to see that your son is more glorious, more beautiful than words could ever express. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.